This is the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. I'm Damien Roos, and today I'm joined by Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast producer, Kieran McParland. Hi, Kieran. Hi. Kieran, so you're the one that did most of the legwork on today's topic, and that's why I wanted to bring you in onto the show. And the show is about mental toughness or mental fitness. Mental toughness, that's right. So when we began looking at this topic, we started with the idea of applying the latest in brain training techniques to cycling and asking the question, can they be applied to cyclists that aren't elite? The time-poor cyclist, the busy athlete, the master's athlete, the athlete that's going to be listening to this. And what we came up with was that there are some great insights from a runner. And I know everyone listening is going to be thinking, a runner, this is a cycling show. But let's reframe it slightly so it makes more sense and it's more relevant to us. It's insights from an endurance athlete that happens to run. So this endurance athlete started racing at 11 and only set his best marathon time this year at age 46. And part of this was learning how to cope with the moments that endurance sport throws at us. But let's just take it back and get an understanding of how looking at brain training got us to this runner and why it's important. Okay, well, I mean, let's start here. So picture this, you're two kilometers from the end of a race It's a really big race, one you've trained hard for, harder than ever, and you're on track for your best ever performance. In other words, you're in new territory, a place you've never been before, physically or mentally. What's going to make the difference this time? What's going to keep you going and make that personal best performance? Is it your training? Might be. Is it your experience? It could be. Or is it your brain, your thoughts, what you're thinking at the time? Definitely. I got to 2K to go in this race, and I realized what was at stake, and that's when it really got hard. And this phrase popped in my head, this is for a lifetime. This last 2K, this, this is for a lifetime. You need to run this like you're not going to run again like this last 2K you've never run. This is for a lifetime. This is our runner, who I'm not going to reveal just yet. And what he's talking about is something that will not be uncommon to endurance athletes, using a mantra to get through the tough times in a race. But there's actually a lot more to it than just repeating something that pops into your head. It's about the role the brain and your thinking plays in finding the limits to endurance performance. And what we're getting at here is there's a huge role that your brain can play in pushing you to new heights performance-wise. In some ways, it's the missing link to performance, but it's very early in terms of the research that's been done. It is showing some promising signs, though, and considering physical fatigue is also something that few truly understand, even after years of research, it has the potential for great gains, and this all stems from understanding the limits of endurance performance and this question. When is enough really enough? So Kieran, when is enough really enough? Well, the 
widely held belief is that once our muscles have run out of fuel, then we're done for. But there have been studies done in rodents where even after they've been pushed to run until they simply can't anymore, researchers have found that the animals still have something left in the tank, fuel reserves. In other words, they can still physically continue, but their brains are telling them otherwise. This tells us that it's not only lactate levels in your blood or oxygen shortages in your muscles that force you to slow down. It's also how your brain interprets those signals. Other studies have shown that when it's hot, cyclists slow down from the off, long before their bodies have a chance to heat up. And others showed that rigging a thermometer to read falsely low room temperatures allows you to go faster. And others found that given incorrect time or distance feedback, people can go faster. I've spent some time looking at how your brain regulates performance in other podcast episodes. And it was South African physiologist Tim Noakes who describes the scientific understanding of endurance performance as brainless. His central governor theory argues that the brain subconsciously creates a safe zone causing the sensation of fatigue. Yeah, and it's fatigue that we are really concerned about here. After 2010, the research on fatigue gets really interesting. In the long-dominant central governor theory, Noakes argues that fatigue is a largely physical phenomenon that happens when the brain signals to depleted muscles that they're out of gas. There's another more promising take on the role of the brain in fatigue, though, by this guy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is uh, Samuele Marcora, and I'm professor of exercise physiology at the University of Kent in the School of Sport and Exercise Science and also member of the Endura Research Group. Marcora thinks that endurance performance relies mainly on perceived effort, and his findings suggest that fatigue and the role it plays in endurance sports might be mostly in your head. Perception of effort is the conscious sensation of how hard and, and difficult exercise is. Measured using something like the Bohr grade of perceived exertion scale, which goes from 6 to 20, from very, very light to very, very hard, Marcora believes that perception is the regulatory mechanism and that it slows you down before you reach your biological limit. As he says, there's no physical reason for exertion to feel any harder. But when you're mentally fatigued, it does. Therefore, you reach what you perceive as a maximal effort earlier. Marcora's theory, which he calls the psychobiological model of exercise tolerance, because it combines the fields of psychology and biology, revises the central governor theory, which he has basically ignored as starting with the basic assumption that people stop exercising because of muscle fatigue. And the assumption is that when the maximal power output coincides with the power output required by the exercise task, the subject stop because despite the maximal voluntary effort is not able, their neuromuscular system is not able to produce the required power output. However, this is an assumption and actually only in 2010 we tested that and we found something very surprising. To test this assumption in 2010, Marcora designed an experiment with a group of rugby players. He had the players sprint on a stationary bike for five seconds, then immediately ride at an endurance-oriented sub-maximal level until they could no longer maintain the required power. Then the subjects were told to do another five-second sprint and the surprising results? The surprising thing was that yes, of course, there is muscle fatigue. As you can see here in the upper line, there is a progressive reduction in maximal power. But even immediately after exhaustion, when the subject decided to stop to cycle, in this case at 242 watts, there was a significant reserve in power output. So the subject could exert almost uh, three times the power output required only a few seconds earlier, albeit for a few seconds. So clearly muscle fatigue was not the limiting factor. Marcora's research doesn't mean that fatigue is entirely imagined. Both the brain and the body experience very real factors of exhaustion, including reduced glycogen. The point, he says, is for athletes to understand that most of us can keep going after our brains start telling us to stop. 
So the real question we need to ask is, how do we train ourselves to keep going after our brains start telling us to stop? And part of the answer to this question was in a book you found. Exactly, right. A book called How Bad Do You Want It? By Matt Fitzgerald, who also happens to be the runner that you mentioned at the beginning of the show. Matt has actually been on the show before, back in episode 53, talking about his book Racing Weight. So it was interesting that his name popped up as the author of this book. I know he's an author and a running coach, but I guess he's also been running himself for a while. Yeah, Matt began running at age 11, quitting before college. He took up the sport again in his late 20s thanks to a work opportunity, did marathons, triathlons, then an Ironman, and then only running. Throughout his career, he's published more than 20 books on training, nutrition, and more recently, sports psychology. And this book covers broader topics than just how to keep going after our brains start telling us to stop. It covers the concepts of mental fitness and mental toughness as something that can be worked on or trained. He believes that just as in everyday life, in sport, we can use techniques that help us overcome certain obstacles. Obstacles like pushing yourself beyond your limits, bouncing back from defeat, preparing yourself for an event, letting go of the burden of pressure, all the way to dealing with the inevitability of getting older. And I thought it was fascinating that he used so many of these techniques in his own running and life, which no doubt helped him recently set a lifetime best marathon time at the age of 46. The thing that got him over the line was what he refers to as a lifeline. At the time, it was the this is for a lifetime line. We'll talk about this later, but when I got him on the phone, the first question I asked him was for a definition of mental fitness and how it's different to mental toughness. Mental fitness, I just think of as the capacity to use your mind to your advantage as an endurance athlete. So, you know, that's sort of a comprehensive nutshell for mental fitness. But if you look under the hood, so to speak, mental fitness is just sort of a collection of what I call coping skills. That's a term from general psychology. Coping skills are the mental tricks and abilities that we use to just get by in life. And, you know, a race, an endurance race, is it's not something that happens outside of life. It's just... <laughs> It's one particular thing you do in, in life. So the same coping skills that apply in your relationships, at work, you know, and dealing with personal crises um, in everyday life, those same coping skills are what either enable you to perform or limit your performance as an athlete. That is mental fitness. Yeah, and even calling it fitness implies that it can be worked on or trained or measured or, you know, like that. there's more to it. Toughness implies more that it's just innate. And you have it or you don't. <laughs> yes, though obviously you can you can cultivate toughness as well. But but again, you know, toughness is just you know th there are those athletes who want to believe those, especially who are sort of naturally tough. Some of them want to think that that is the only thing that matters, and it can get them in trouble um, because there are sometimes when you need to be smart and not tough, <laughs> or you know, smarter than you are tough, or there are times when you need to be. Um, Toughness can be a kind of security blanket. It's sort of a way of, if you have a ready solution to every problem, then that spares you the effort of having to find a real solution sometimes. But toughness, in fact, is not the answer to every problem. Mental fitness is not a new idea, but the concept is a valid way of working on the brain to maximize performance, training, 
and racing. And as Matt says, it's not just useful for sport. Having high mental fitness helps to maintain a healthy level of mental well-being for life in general. When you think of a mentally fit athlete, who comes to mind? Elite athletes are the first people I think of, and common mental fitness attributes linked to elite performers include the following. High self-confidence, commitment and the ability to set goals, composure, motivation, having perspective, emotional control, control of activation and relaxation levels, ability to embrace and manage pressure, passion and love for sport, work ethic, responsibility. Developing these attributes comes from awareness and reflecting on responses related to best performance situations, experiences and perspectives. Matt recently experienced this by living with some elite performers and witnessed this awareness firsthand. I had a very interesting experience this summer. I spent three months in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is at 7,000 feet. Because of that, it's a popular place for endurance athletes to live and train. I was there living and training with a team of professional runners. And I, I myself am not a professional runner. I'm also 46 years old. So I was, I was out of my depth, but that was sort of the nature of the experiment. But anyway, you know, I was surrounded by, I think it was about 13 of the best runners in America, men and women. And I was there for three months. I've, you know, I've spent my share of time interacting with elite endurance athletes, but this was really, truly immersive. And, you know, you can't help but notice patterns, especially, and to contrast general observations about this caliber of athlete with the athletes I'm usually dealing with, you know, as a coach, I'm mostly coaching just, you know, recreational athletes. And as a group, these, these young pros, what struck me about their minds is just that they're very rational. <laughs> they're people with emotions and personalities and hangups like everyone else, but reason seems to be almost always in charge with, with these folks, whether it's making a tactical decision on a race course, whether deciding to bail out of a workout that's not going well. That was really striking. The rational thinking Matt's talking about is part of this awareness. Things like composure, having perspective, mindfulness, staying focused on task, emotional control, and the ability to manage stress and anxiety all come down to rational thinking. Motivation is also a big one on the mental fitness checklist, but the reasons that drive athletes to succeed are just as diverse as the athletes themselves. Matt brought up the example of a gay athlete who spent many years in the closet. What drove him to succeed was the determination to prove people wrong about the idea that gay people are weak, etc. He also gives the example of an athlete he came across who had a very difficult and unstable childhood and who was eventually abandoned by her mother. I can see that stories like this have the potential to drive someone, but not everybody is faced with such drive-inducing obstacles. But there is another factor, that the people that experience childhood adversity and the people that experienced perfect childhoods have in common. Resilience. Right. Yeah, so that gets into the concept of resilience. Resilience is, you know, I, I call it in the book, the mother of all coping skills. Really, resilience is just getting back up when you've been knocked down. Um, and, of course, you have to do that in order to de develop any of the other coping skills because those other skills require that you be in the game. So if you quit when you're knocked down, if you're not resilient, forget about developing any of these others. That's your foundation. You have to be resilient because uh, everybody's going to get knocked down. Um, and what psychological research shows is that in terms of you know, childhood adversity, um, obviously, you know, resilience can come from some, to a degree you can be born with it. And then to a degree you develop it through experience. And uh, 
again, with the, with the research suggests that when, when it comes to adversity experienced in childhood, there's a, you know, a bell curve relationship between adversity and resilience. So if you had like the perfect childhood and nothing ever went wrong, you tend to be not very resilient as, a, as an adult. But if you were on the other extreme and you grew up like in a war zone and you, you know, watched your father killed in front of your eyes and, you know, just like uh, you know, so, so the sort of horrific scenario that unfortunately is real in some places, that tends to break people. <laughs> so they tend to not end up very resilient as adults too. It's people who were, are sort of in the middle. They experience some adversity, adversity, but not so much that it breaks them. They tend to end up, again, it's not the only factor, but in terms of like, you know, a general correlation, that, that's how it works. So then, you know, if you're someone who grew up with a happy childhood, without a lot of adversity, and you want to be a great athlete, you, you might wonder, okay, <laughs> where am I going to get my resilience from? And, you know, the, Cadell Evans is a great kind of paradigmatic example of how that can work, which is that um, you, you, you develop it through failure. I'm going to cut in here for a sec. This concept really stuck out to me. Coming from what I think was an almost perfect childhood, this concept of resilience is something I've never experienced on a large scale. And this idea that failure itself can provide the motivation is something that never really crossed my mind. Failing on purpose is not the point. And failure as a whole has for some reason been glorified in certain circles. But this idea of failure itself as the motivator, that everything could be perfect, but you still fail, and that's where the motivation comes from, is fascinating. Especially in the case of an elite performer like Cadell Evans. So... You know, Cadell had all of the ingredients. He had incredible talent. He had early opportunities. He had support. You know, he was born to win the Tour de France, but he, you know, he finally went there and lost, came back, lost again, came back, lost a third time. He's like, what's missing here? What perhaps the only thing that was missing was a bunch of failure. And, you know, I, I call it sweet disgust. Actually, it's, it's someone else's term. I can't remember exactly who's now. Like you said, I wrote the book two years ago. My own term for it is the fed up factor. So, you know, you can have everything you need to win except resilience, and but you will acquire that precisely because resilience makes you fail and you get sick of failing. Uh, so you see that happen. Cadell Evans is a great example. I think he won the tour on his seventh try. Mark Allen from triathlon, same sort of uh, to uh, perfect parallel. I think he lost the Ironman World Championship six times before he finally won it. And he said afterwards, I would never have won it if I hadn't lost it six times first because it gave me that last piece that I needed to be a champion. This is hard to break down and hand to you as a neat bit of advice you can follow. And that's kind of the point. Only awareness and experience will get you closer to your own unique answers to increase your mental fitness, something Matt is well aware of as he shares a great personal example. Ideas are powerful. So sometimes you tend to think, oh, you know, what are the exercises I need to do to get mentally fitter? The answer is kind of none. <laughs> you know, you just, you think and feel and experience and act intentionally. So for me, a huge factor was that as an endurance sports journalist, I interacted with a lot of the best cyclists, triathletes, runners in the world, and I realized these are normal people. There's a tendency if they're at a remove to think, oh, they're super talented and they work hard and that's all there is to it. But, you know, you get to know these folks and you realize that they have doubts, fears, insecurities, bad days, dark nights of the soul, all this stuff, and yet they still manage to, to rise to the occasion. And for me, that was kind of almost shaming, but helpfully so, because I realized I have no excuse. 
I have absolutely no excuse. So like I use that shame to drive myself. So, you know, when I would be out in, in a race and get to a point where I might just kind of mail it in, you know, cruise to the finish at 95%. We all know there's a huge difference in suffering level between <laughs> 100% and 95%, like no one else might know based on your time or your wattage or whatever, but you know. So you know, I would get to those crucial moments and I would think about that. You know, it's just like I have no excuse. And so, it, you know, ideas are powerful. Like, that's not the only thing that I use, but that's sort of what got the ball rolling for me is that I just had this counterexample. I, I remember doing an interview with uh, the triathlete Hunter Kemper, who he went to the Olympics four times for uh, the United States and was at one point the number one ranked triathlete in the world. And in the course of the interview, it came out that my two-mile time in high school was faster than Hunter's. <laughs> and here he is going to the Olympics, and I'm writing about him. And so that, that was like a powerfully eye-opening for me. Matt's experience is unique and hard to replicate for the same results. One thing endurance athletes have in common, though, is dealing with the mental strain that every time you line up for a race, and I'd even argue an important training ride, the risk is that you might fail. You know, it's like if you're an actor, if you don't know your lines before you go on stage, you're doomed. And if you're an endurance athlete and you're not fit when you arrive at the starting line, you're doomed. But as an actor, you have to perform. You know your lines, but you could perform them poorly or well. You could connect with the audience. You could fail. Like it's on you in the moment. It's undecided whether it's going to be a good performance or not. And it's the same thing in endurance sports. Like you're, there's opportunity and there's risk. When the gun goes off, it remains to be seen what, what's going to happen. In the Chicago Marathon, um, I had uh, sort of a lingering uh, hip flexor tendon injury, and I thought it was beyond me, but it, it flared up eight miles in. And I don't care who you are, that's going to hit a panic switch. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh my goodness, I have 18 miles to run, and this thing took me out a few weeks ago. How do I manage that? Okay, here's you know, that, that's like maybe the equivalent of one of your fellow actors forgetting a line. <laughs> You're like, okay, I wasn't expecting this. It's out of my control. But if you sort of accept that, that it is this high wire act and it's not decided beforehand, it's pretty liberating and empowering. And if, if you have a certain amount of experience to fall back on or, or confidence or whatever, it's part of the exhilaration. That's why, you know, I, I'm far from being done. I did I ran my first race when I was 11, 35 years on, I, I have no intention of quitting because it just... <laughs> It's such an intense, uh, one-of-a-kind experience uh, every time you, you tow a starting line. Learning how to deal with these moments is an important way to help your performance. So what do you do with all this risk? Do you get nervous before a race or are you like Matt? I've been at this so long now that it's just not a problem anymore. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, um, you know, I don't get nervous before races. I get I get excited, you know, a little bit of nervousness is fine, but I've just gotten to the point where I'm not even, I'm just, I'm kind of amped. And then because I, I recoiled from the suffering of endurance racing so intensely and it shattered my self image so profoundly that I've really come fully 180 degrees and now I crave those sensations. So I can certainly have a bad race where it's just not my day. You know, I just don't have my legs, but that's different from getting into a race and realizing, oh my God, this sucks. <laughs> when I have those moments that you're going to have in every race, I actually enjoy them. Like, I, because I feel like this is my playground now. Like I've gotten really good at this. You know, the last major race I ran was the Chicago Marathon. 
and I actually ran the fastest marathon I ever had. So obviously I'm performing at, at, at my absolute limit in this race. But everything I experienced, even though I was redefining my limits, was so familiar because I've done it so many times before that I just like, it was almost felt like a script, like where I'm just like, okay, this is the part where I do this. <laughs> and Imagine being in a place where, like Matt, you know how to handle those inevitable tough times during a race. Having the confidence to know that even when you're redefining your limits, you know you can handle it. This answers the question Kieran asked at the start of the show. What's going to make the difference this time? What's going to keep you going and make that personal best performance? Well, for Matt, he was well prepared mentally and physically to go somewhere he had never been before performance-wise. But it's not like it's all smooth sailing. Even though you might be prepared, you still have to get through those tough bits. And this is where Matt's this is for a lifetime mantra popped into his head. Of course, it's as unique as Matt himself, but his advice here can be used as a tool by anyone that needs an extra boost when you run into an obstacle during a race. The thing is, every race is also unique. So I'll give you an example of how I felt very good until the, the really late going of the race. And then I started to struggle. And I also realized that I could break two hours and 40 minutes for, for the first time in my life. And also I'm well aware that I'm 46 and that this may never, I may never get a chance like this again. This is coming off the three months I'd spent training with professionals. That wasn't going to be repeated. <laughs> so there's research showing that positive self uh, talk enhances performance. It seems like, you know, just such a goofy thing, you know, just, you know, I think I can, I think I can, <laughs> that type of thing, but it actually works. You know, there are controlled experiments showing that like, you know, little mantras of, of positive self-talk help you perform, but there's no one size fits all. You can't just tell someone, use this mantra in your race and it will help you because if it doesn't fit your personality or if it doesn't fit the circumstances, it, it won't have the desired effect. So you, you need to develop your own personal collection of, of mantras that work for you, but you also need to be open to receiving them in the moment. I call them lifelines. So I got to maybe with 2K to go in this race and I realized what was at stake and that's when it you know, really got hard. And the, this phrase popped in my head, this is for a lifetime. It's a, this last 2K, this, this is for a lifetime. Like you need to run this like you're not going to run again, let alone PR again in this distance. Like that's the last 2K you're ever gonna run. It was, it was just the right phrase. You know what I mean? Just like it fit me, it fit the circumstances, it helped me get to that, that finish line. So that was novel. Like I had never thought that before. I will never think of it again, but I'd done enough races to know that if you wait, a lifeline will come and you recognize it when you've got it and, and then you use it. So that's just, you know, experience, you know, just working to my advantage and kind of a concrete example of how I go about it. These mantras or lifelines are just one way that an athlete can deal with stress or pain. And yes, they can be anything. In his autobiography, Cadell Evans talked about the lifeline he used in stage 18 of the 2011 Tour de France, the epic ride of a lifetime that won him the 2011 Tour de France. He used the mantra, just keep going, as he dragged the remnants of the peloton in pursuit of Andy Schleck. I also have a distinct one that I remember because I used it on the day of one of my biggest race wins, and I've never used it since. It doesn't have some great backstory like Matt's, 
this is for a lifetime or a great result like Cadell's, but it was there and it worked. I remember repeating go well, go shell to the rhythm of my cadence and it got me home in first place. Matt also deals with other techniques in his book, one of them being the idea of bracing yourself. He argues that the idea of always expecting your next race or event to be your hardest yet is a strategy we can all use to prepare mentally for a competition. I want to stay focused on this idea of going into a race without the expectations that that can set you up for failure and how that plays out when you're in the middle of an endurance race because it's long and your mind goes through a million different thoughts when you're in the middle of this thing. And one of your suggestions is just to remove expectations and see how you go. But coupled with that is this idea of going into a, a race, expecting it to be the hardest thing you've done to date. So how does that kind of feed into giving you a better result? Yeah. So um, again, this, this gets into uh, research and general psychology um, that you know definitely applies to in- endurance sports. And it has to do with, um, and you know, these situations occur in life all the time when you know that you're about to experience something painful or unpleasant. Uh, you know, it could be a you know trip to the the dentist, could be a 40k time trial. You know, could could be you know a high pressure day at, at the office where you have to do a you know a major presentation or something, and you you know it's going to be unpleasant. Um, and there are basically two ways you can two psychological orientations that you can bring into those types of situations. One is acceptance. And this research really focuses on pain tolerance because it's so concrete um, or or pain perception. So you can either accept it, which is basically to say, this is going to hurt and I know it, but you know, I've experienced this type of pain before I survived it. I'm ready. The other orientation is sort of more like a, a wishful thinking denial mindset, which is the last time I had this procedure at the dentist, it hurt like hell. I'm going to have the same procedure today. I sure hope it doesn't hurt this time. And to be honest with you, I just had two wisdom teeth removed and I approached it with my natural tendency, acceptance that it's going to hurt, but no more than anything else before. It was a new experience to me. So I kept telling myself that it can't be worse than another surgery that I had this year. So I just prepared myself to breathe and get through the pain. What totally shocked me was how painful it was, especially afterwards. It's no wonder some people never come back for round two. So here I am with the pain fresh in my mind, thinking about how I'll approach next time. And right now I'm leaning towards mindset two, denial, and hoping it's not as bad next time. What the research shows is that people who have the first orientation, acceptance, they don't feel less pain, but they tolerate more pain. Whereas the wishful thinking people are sort of then, they, they set themselves up to be surprised by how painful it is and which makes them panic, which makes them experience the pain as more unpleasant. So if you know it's going to hurt, you should accept that it's going to hurt because it's going to help you deal with it better. And so, you know, perceived effort in endurance racing, which is the essence of the discomfort we experience, it's not the same thing as pain. It's a discrete perception, but it's very similar. And usually what applies to pain applies to perception of effort as well. So, you you know, it sounds perilously close to pessimism to go into a race saying, this could be the most painful thing or you know the most unpleasant thing I ever experienced. But but it's really not because you, you, you that's separate from believing you can achieve your goal. You know, it's just an expect it's it's a realistic expectation. So you can't be su- unpleasantly surprised by how how much you do suffer in, in the race. 
So I'm better off getting back to mindset one, knowing I've actually survived the other two teeth being removed and I can survive it again. And this is something we can all do when it comes to racing. Change our perception. Know it's going to hurt, but we have survived in the past and are ready to tolerate the pain, especially knowing that we now know that acceptance reduces the unpleasantness of pain without reducing the pain itself. And for this reason, it is a more effective coping skill. We can actually take perception changing into our training with what Makora calls, funnily enough, perception-based training. Actually, this is nothing new. It's just switching from your favorite objective load measurement, like heart rate and wattage, and making room for ratings of perceived effort in monitoring your training load during training. How do you feel during training is the best indicator of your overall physiological response to training, and your perception of effort during exercise is influenced by expectations in such a way that when you feel worse than expected at any given point in a race or ride, this itself makes you feel even worse and thus perform worse. So you're better off expecting to feel miserable in every race or ride and bracing yourself for suffering in this manner will minimize the risk that your performance will be compromised by higher than expected perceptions of effort. What else can we do to train ourselves to keep going after our brains start telling us to stop? The final part of this comes from Samuel Marcora. He talks about the variety of other factors that can affect perception of effort and therefore performance. The most relevant one for busy working cyclists is mental fatigue. If you exert mentally for a long period of time, your endurance performance goes down. And Makora actually showed this in 2009 when he published a study that showed that mental fatigue can negatively affect physical performance. Subjects spent 90 minutes either passively watching a documentary about trains or sitting in front of a computer performing a cognitively challenging task of responding repeatedly to a sequence of letters. Both groups then immediately completed a cycling test Compared with the film watchers, participants in the task group found the exercise felt harder and reached exhaustion 15% earlier. In other words, if you have a long day at work and then go exercise, you won't perform as well. By measuring it experimentarily, he showed that the negative effect of prolonged mental work on physical performance is as large as the effect of muscle fatigue on physical performance. What can we as athletes do about the effect of mental exhaustion on performance? What are the practical things we can do? Avoid mental fatigue before competitions. Sleep well. Avoid video games or other mentally fatiguing tasks. Avoid controlling your own emotion. At the end of the day, it may be more about the attitude we have to an effort than the effort. Because as we're starting to uncover, it's not the load that breaks you, it's the way you carry it. If you're new to semi-pro cycling, check out the back catalogue of shows on all aspects of performance at semiprocycling.com or sign up for the weekly workout stack, the guide that shows you how to structure your training week and use your training time more effectively. And I'll send you the best of our episodes straight to your inbox. All right, until two weeks time, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box.
whichever one you're into.